All right, we were going to be in a message in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 uh, this evening, but I'm just going to do something topical, and then we'll get back to 1 Timothy. I'm looking forward to chapter 2, verse 8. It's actually a verse I've done a lot of study on actually before uh, getting ready for it this time. I spent time on it and getting ready for it uh, tonight, which isn't going to happen, but uh, it's something I had a lot of notes on and did a lot of study on prior to gathering together you know, this evening, and I just uh, am looking forward to it because it's about prayer, and Paul circles back around to prayer after he's dealt with it, and then he brings it up, but he talks about reasons why we ought to be praying, and then he gets back into prayer, and it's something that he says about prayer that's so significant that we're going to get into uh, next time, Lord willing, but I want to do a message on having victory over pride, you know, that's one of those sins that a lot of people, people will confess their sins, you know, it's been said, you know, they'll say, man, pray for me, you know, I, you know, I've, I struggle with this, or, you know, I struggle with anger, or, you know, you talk to your brother, hey, I'm struggling with lust, and please pray for me, you know, but a lot of people don't typically come up and say, hey, pray for me, I struggle with pride really bad, I'm just such an arrogant person, you know, uh, and that's something, though, that we all need to overcome in our lives at times. Because pride is, there, there's, it's, it's untrue. You've heard the saying that, you know, the love of money is root of all evil. And it's not actually biblical. The Bible actually says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil. And if you asked, hey, what do you think the root of all evil is? I would say pride. Pride is the root of all evil. And the scripture I'd use to back that up would be Satan's fall, because that's the root of rebellion and sin. And in Isaiah, if you want to turn there, turn to Isaiah chapter 14, please. Isaiah chapter 14. And we read about Satan's fall here. And it's interesting, because you have taunts against uh, Satan, and you have a, a taunt against, you know, the king of Babylon, and elsewhere, the king of Tyre. And what God ends up doing is addressing the principalities and powers behind these kings. So somebody will say, oh, this isn't to Satan, this is to the king. It's like, no, uh, you don't realize biblically because, you know, there's what the Bible, you know, we, we refer to as double references in scripture. Uh, sometimes, for instance, when the Bible speaks of Satan, it also speaks of the serpent. Satan used the serpent. We see that in Revelation chapter 12, right? He's called the old serpent, the dragon's, Satan and the devil, all in one verse. When Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, he was talking to Peter, but he was also talking to specifically the entity that was using Peter when Peter said, God, you know, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. Get behind me, Satan, he said to Peter. So somebody said, oh, he's talking to Peter. Yeah, but he's also talking about the principality that's using him. And we see that frequently throughout scripture uh, from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and there's a curse placed upon the serpent. But if you look at the curse, it goes beyond the physical being that Satan used. It goes into the principality that, uh, that whose head would be crushed by Jesus with a double reference. All the way to Revelation chapter 12, which I just referenced, verse 9, where Satan is called the dragon, the serpent, Satan, and uh, the devil, the abolos, the satanus, all those in one verse. Uh, so you get this double reference going on. What I mention here is when you get to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, some commentators are saying, well, he's really talking to the king of Babylon or he's really talking to the king of Tyre. 
When in reality, you guys, he's talking to about the, all of a sudden he shifts to talk about the principality, the satanic force, or Satan himself in these cases, that's using the king of Babylon or the king of Tyre. And how you can know that is in Ezekiel chapter 28, he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, the king, the human king of Tyre was never in Eden, the garden of God. He says, you were the anointed cherub. The king was never an anointed cherub. You know, we don't believe angels become human beings and, and live as kings and, of countries and so forth. Uh, and so the narrative goes beyond, the descriptive words go way beyond a human being. We see the same thing going on in Isaiah chapter 14. And it's interesting because we read, how art thou fallen, I'm quoting the King James, sorry, verse 12, NASB, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, what? I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like who? The most high. Yet we read in verse 15, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And he's going to be cast down. Now it's interesting. Satan will be cast down. But notice here we have the first rebellion. When you read Ezekiel 28, we won't take time to go there because I have a lot of scriptures I want to go through with you. Uh, you'll see that he was lifted up by his beauty. He was an incredibly beautiful angel. He was one of the cherubs, okay? The, uh, he's, he's the anointed cherub says he profaned his sanctuaries. Those are places of worship in Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, uh, he was a worship leader. Many scholars, commentators, Bible teachers say he was the ultimate worship leader. He was the worship leader in heaven. I don't go that far to say, I, said, I say he may have been, but I have to have text that says he was the, but he was no cherub. And we know the cherubim, cherubim is just, Im is Hebrew, for in Hebrew is plural. We know the cherubim angels are the worship leaders because in Isaiah, or Revelation chapter 4, they begin the worship. It starts with them. Then it spreads to the angels, and eventually it spreads to all of humanity. So he was a worship leader, but he wanted the worship to go to himself. That's why we see so much music that's inspired by Satan and praising wicked things like murder and death and suicide and killing police officers and, and you know, calling misogynistic toward women and so forth and, 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 and praising per sexual perversion and drugs and, you know, just death. It's just heartbreaking, violence, all those things that are popular in so much of the rap music and much of the rock music uh, today, metal music, thrash metal, death metal, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it's praised. It's all the things that, that are glorified for often are evil. Now, it's interesting. Satan, notice this is the key, though. In verse 13, but you said in your heart, what? I will ascend to heaven. See the word I? The next I will raise my throne above the stars of God, right? And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recess north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He has, Satan has a bad case of iitis, you know? It's, it's I-ism. It's just the self-focus. It's all about him. And instead of giving glory to the one who gave him life and created him and the other angels and all of creation, 
he was lifted up in pride and focused on himself and his will. And that's the first rebel. The Bible says in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan sinned from the beginning. He was a liar and did not remain in the truth. So it's important that we understand that he was the first rebel and he was lifted up in pride because of his beauty. He had obviously had power, not of power to take over the Lord God. He had limited knowledge, obviously, because he wasn't aware that he was going to be cast down to Sheol. And he's very active today. But, that, but sin begins with pride. And if you look at sin in general, it begins in our hearts by putting ourselves before God and others. It starts with pride. In fact, the Bible says in the last days, it gives a list of what people will be like in the last days. It says last days, perilous times will come for men. But the first thing on the list, what is it? For men will be what? Lovers of self. Just pride, arrogance about them. As Christians, it ought not to be that way, amen? As Christians, we of all people need to, re we recognize our creator, right? He's far greater than us. We don't deserve to be alive. He gave us life. We blew it big time, right? We deserve to be judged and separated from God forever. But God in his great love humbled himself and gave himself for us so we could have eternal life. So that shouldn't, that should humble us, right? Like, whoa, look at who you are. Great in power, great in love, great in mercy, great in grace. And it should cause us to want to bow down before him. But the I word, you know, I will do this. I, 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 I. In fact, the middle letter of sin is what? I. What's the middle letter of the word pride? I, right? And, you know, it's just interesting. Now, it's, the scriptures, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, right? It says, and I think this is interesting scripture, it says pride goes before What? A fall, right? Goes be, it says, pride goes before a fall and a haughty spirit, or pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Sometimes we just sum it up and there's a popular saying, pride goes before a fall. But it literally says in the scripture, pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Or pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Same meaning. And God affords us all kinds of examples in Scripture where pride goes before a fall. Who were, what's some examples? You could think of some off the top of your head probably of people that were proud in the Bible and then they fell. Samson? Samson, Jimmy, that's a great example. Samson was proud and he was arrogant and then he fell radically. Ends up getting his eyes poked out and a little kid leads him and Talk about getting humbled, right? He knows how to humble the pr proud. Samson gets radically humbled, you know? And it almost seems incredulous to some readers of the Bible that Samson would be so dumb because he makes some really dumb moves. And I was explaining to somebody recently I was talking to who said, how could Samson be so dumb, you know? Telling Delilah his secrets. You know, this is how, this is how you could defeat me, you know? It's in my hair. If you tied it, you know, first he's toying with her. If you tied me up, I, and then he just, pfft, nope. And then, well, if you cut my hair. And I said, well, he was dumb in what he did, 
but he was smarter than you think. Remember, if you look at Samson's life, he was, he was uh, <laughs> remember his riddles and stuff? He's a pretty clever guy. But you know why he got proud, I told this person? This was, just had this conversation like three or four days ago. I go, because Samson presumed on God's grace and mercy. Because there were certain things that Samson was warned not to do as a Nazarite. And a Nazarite, he wasn't supposed to touch grapes. Not even touch grapes as a Nazarite. Yet we read about him wandering through, taking shortcuts through the grape vineyards. Hmm. Doesn't say he picked some, but he's, what are you doing so close to the grapes? He wasn't supposed to touch a carcass. He touched two. He pulled honey out of the lion's gut, remember? The carcass of the lion. He grabbed the head of an ass, right? And used it to kill a bunch of people. Super strong. The Holy Spirit came upon him. What am I saying? What I'm saying to you is Samson was getting away with some things, he thought. You understand? God was being merciful to him, hoping he would repent. That's why it says in Romans chapter 2, uh, verse 4, you know, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. But then he warns about taking advantage of that kindness. In Romans, he warns in, uh, elsewhere in Romans 2 that they use God's kindness, basically like Jude says, as a, a license for sin in Jude 4. And Paul talks about that. And said so that's a mis, you know, shall we sin that grace may more abound? Never, he says. King James, God forbid, but in the Greek it doesn't say God forbid, but may it never be, you know? Is no, we don't want to presume on God's grace and think, oh, I just rebel because God didn't, God didn't, you know, hammer me here. You just keep going on in rebellion. And then he just continued to rebel. And then he gave up. It's his fault, right? And he's shorn my hair off, you know, yeah, I'll lose all my strength. Sure enough, boom, he's weak, captured him, burned his eyes out, blind. And then his ending, which we don't have time to get into because I didn't know Samson was going to be brought up, but he's, that's a great example, Jimmy. Samson's a really good one. Uh, Pharaoh's another good example. But I'll spend less time on Pharaoh because you brought up Samson. But Pharaoh's a great example because he kept denying, he kept putting himself above God, right? And I don't have time to go into it, but you know, every single plague of the 10 plagues was a judgment on one or more Egyptian gods. We've talked about that in some detail. Every single plague that took place was pointed at the Egyptian gods that they were worshiping. And that's because God hates false gods because, first of all, it's wrong. First commandment, uh, not the greatest commandment, but the first of the Ten Commandments is that you shall know the gods before me, right? The greatest commandment is like it. You shall love the Lord God, thy God, the whole heart, soul, and all your strength and all your mind. But the Egyptians were being deceived and they would be damned if they died in their idolatry, but God wanted to reveal to them who the one true God is. It says that over and over again, that he wants to show the Egyptians and the Jews too that he's the one true God. He's holy. And by the time he, they left after the 10 plagues, there was a mixed multitude. There were, there were believing Gentiles, Egyptians that left with them that turned to the one true God. Praise God for that, amen. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, amen. And God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's not as though God got in and said, I'm going to make your heart hard, otherwise you would love me and follow me. No, he's not doing evil to Pharaoh who wanted to follow the Lord. Pharaoh didn't want to follow the Lord. Pharaoh was about himself. Now God chose Moses, who was the humblest man on the earth, it says. Amen? And Moses even struggled at times with pride. 
Remember, he got angry at the people. and Do I have to hit this rock all over again? And he spoke for God when he shouldn't have and stepped out of line. Pharaoh was already wicked. He was already thinking, because guess what? You look at Ra, you know, Horus, you look at, you know, Apis, you look at all these different uh, Egyptian gods. You know who was considered the highest, at the, you know, was the Pharaoh. He was the personification of Ra. And he did not want to have them leave. He had all this free labor. But guess what? You reap what you sow, and the Egyptians were killing the children of the Hebrews, remember? Because they didn't want them to become too big of a force. Let's kill their, their boys, man. And their, Moses was, you know, letting them go in a basket and raised by Pharaoh's daughter. But Pharaoh was arrogant, guys. And he wouldn't repent. And he hardened his heart. And he lost his firstborn child. And he lost it. He chased, you know, the Jews. God opened up the Red Sea. God drowned his armies. It brought great destruction upon his armies. Great destruction upon his resources, his cattle, his, you know, the Nile, everything, because of his pride. And your world, he had a big kingdom, but your world that you live in, you get all destroyed by pride. When we get lifted up in pride. So Pharaoh is a really powerful picture. Job chapter 40 verse 12 says this, Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Wow. Psalm 119.21, you rebuke, you, the Lord, rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Wow. Psalm 147.6 says, the Lord sustains the humble, but cast the wicked to the ground. Wow. But the wicked are contrasted there with the humble. They're those that are proud in heart. The Bible says the backslider is filled with his own ways. In Jeremiah chapter 2. When someone backslides to the Lord, they're no longer walking in the way of righteousness. It says they're filled with their own ways in Jeremiah chapter 2. And that's pride because we're putting our way before the Lord's way. And we've got to be careful with that, you guys. You know, we have to say, you know, we don't want to be, because might, you might not say, hey, I want to be like God. I want to be like the most high God, like Pharaoh, you know. You might just say, hey, I'm too good for God to judge. Me and God have a special relationship. Yeah, he's going to judge other people, but not me. Like Samson, right? I mean, Samson was used as a battering ramp for the Lord to judge other people. But it went to his head. I, psh, God's not going to judge me, you know? And pride can be so subtle where we just start living independently from God. Well, I don't need to consult you, Lord. I don't need to pray, you know? I got this, Lord. I don't need you. It's like God created us in such a way where we need him. Do you know that? The way, the very fabric of creation, he created us in such a way where we must depend upon him. Every day we depend on his air, right? And food and water that he supplies. And you can go sometime a few days without water or so, you know, a, a few weeks or actually more without food. But you can't go very long without oxygen. But the same is true spiritually. You can't go without his spirit, without his presence, without his person in your life. And we have to be very careful because a lot of professing Christians deal with pride because they don't pray. They're self-sufficient in their own minds, which isn't true. You really can't be self-sufficient. And if we don't have a prayer life, that's a form of pride because we're saying, hey, I can handle this. But Jesus said, apart from me, we, we, you could do what? Nothing. Right, amen, nothing. And Paul said, 
Through him, through Christ, we could do what? Everything. Everything, all things. Amen. So we need to depend upon the Lord. Again, it says the wise in heart accept commands. But a chattering fool comes to ruin. That's Proverbs 10, 8. And it's interesting. I, I, I think of, uh, you know, the passage I read that says, the Lord sustains the humble, but he casts the wicked to the ground. Who's a, can you think of a leader that was cast to the ground? Nebuchadnezzar. Amen, bro. Good job, Bob. Nebuchadnezzar, man. I mean, he was the king of Babylon. Babylon was one of the seven wonders of the world in ancient times. You know? And then, he didn't, God didn't have to let him be king of Babylon, but he did. But instead of recognizing that, he says, oh, look at this Babylon. I mean, they had known for their hanging gardens and just beautiful main street and just mind-blowing beauty. He goes, look at this Babylon that I have made with my hands. Right after that, man, he fell down to the ground. And he thought he was like a wild beast. He went insane. You know, there's millions and millions of people today that are going crazy. There's countless hundreds of thousands in our country that are thinking that they're another sex than they really are. Even though a woman has an XX chromosome and a man has an XY chromosome, a woman has vag a vagina, she has a reproductive system, uh, you know, all these things, breast, and the man has a prostate. Women don't have prostate. Women, says I'm a man now. Nope, you're never going to get a prostate. And the man, you, he becomes a woman. No, you still have a prostate, you know. You're, there's a difference between male and female. But now you can just be, you know, I can be whatever I want to be. I don't have to be what God created me to be. And it's becoming, it's vogue. It's almost like a peer pressure thing on the internet right now. You know, Facebook, you know, and, and so forth. Uh, it's, it's sad what's going on. But people also identify as animals now. Okay, they're thinking they're animals. Okay, that's called lycanthropy, if you were to look it up. Lycanthropy is thinking that you're an actually an animal. And Nebuchadnezzar thought he was, God handed him over to Satan. Okay? He was disciplined. And the Bible talks about if you reject God, he'll give you over to just craziness, you know? And before you knew it, Nebuchadnezzar on the ground, and for seven years, he ate off the ground. And it's interesting, when I was studying that years back, I started looking at secular, uh, secular information on him. I bought a book on, on Babylon from a secular person, and it talked about in the book how he became indifferent to his family, that the annals of Babylon recorded Nebuchadnezzar didn't communicate with them for a period of time. Well, I think there was more to the story than that, but of course the Babylonians are going to say, hey, our king just went insane for seven years, you know. But it's kind of interesting. The scriptures say in, in Proverbs 3.34 that God mocks, uh, he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Wow. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. Both humility comes wisdom. Pride disgraces you, disgraces your life. Proverbs 8.12 says, Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. It's a lot like that scripture in 16.18 that says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Very similar. Proverbs 18.12, 
Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. You want true honor? Be humble yourself, man. Proverbs 21.4 says, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. This all pride and independence from God, I don't need you, I'm going to do my own thing, I'll be my own God, is all disgusting because it all follows in Satan's footsteps. He was the first rebel. First one saying, I'm going to live independent of God, I'm going to be my own God. And guess what? He told Eve that, remember? You shall be as God. Same deception. Bam, she fell. Kicked out of Eden. Got, grew old and went back to the dust. The Antichrist is going to declare himself, sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Sit in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And then in verse 7, it talks about he'll be slain by the spirit of God's mouth, the brightness of his coming, you know. Be wiped out, man. Humbled. And he doesn't even get away to a thousand years. Talk about pride going before destruction. Everybody else that perishes at Christ's second coming goes to uh, Hades for a thousand years and just a little bit over a thousand years because Satan's let loose after a thousand years. But the great white throne judgment's not till after that. And then after that, those whose names aren't written in the Lamb's Book of Life are thrown in the lake of fire. But guess what? The beast, the false prophet, the Antichrist, he's thrown in the lake of fire at Christ's second coming. Nobody else is even there. Even the devil's not there yet. The Antichrist is roasting along with the beast for over a thousand years before anybody else even gets to the lake of fire. Talking about pride going before destruction. It's crazy when you think about it. Wow. Proverbs 29, 13, 23 says, 29, 23 says, a man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Isaiah 5, 21 says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Man, I mean, pride goes before destruction. I mean, the Titanic, you remember the Titanic? The most awesome ship ever made at the time. I mean, it, it, news went around the world, you know, 12,000 men to make this thing, you know. And it was just, it's made in voyage from Belfast, you know. We did a, we've got a video that we just haven't put out yet because we have to, I have to finish it. But I did a message years ago called The Ark versus the Titanic, something like that. That was a favorite message of a lot of people for years. I don't know why we didn't, didn't re-preach that with some maybe more modern illustrations. But the illustrations were basically taken from the Titanic itself, you know. But we went and filmed at Belfast. We went into the, where the Titanic was, you know, talked to the people. And uh, the guy we interviewed, we've got some really good interview footage where he's talking about, yeah, it was pride and arrogance and all that stuff led to its destruction, you know. Because they knew, the captain, others, you know, said things like, you know, even God himself cannot sink this ship. Then when they were being warned, they had clear warning that they were headed toward uh, icebergs. No biggie. This is the Titanic. All kinds of people dead, man. Sunk in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Pride goes before fall. That's what happens in our own lives, you know? And it's very, very important that we understand this and, you know, we don't get this attitude because we're told in the Bible that we're not supposed to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. You read those types of scriptures in Philippians 2, Romans 12, you know, sober judgment toward ourselves because we can, and you know what, some people, it doesn't matter how humble they are, they're still proud. You try to, you can, they can learn lessons that they're not God and that God is God. And one of the cures for, for pride is just look at what God's made around you. The starry heaven, man, 
all the creation, how things work. It's just so beyond us. You know, we could barely, barely tie our shoes at times, right? You know? And there's ways, I think, that God's given us to keep us humble. I don't want to get gross here, but just going to the bathroom, that's like a humbling experience. And that's, I think that's God's way. One of his ways, I think that's one God's way, is remind us that we're just nothing without him, you know? He just humbles us. There's a lot of ways he humbles us, you know? And, but, you know, we have to be careful because some people's, are heart, the disposition of their hearts are such that they won't be humbled no matter what happens. And it makes me think of the little boy, you know, just proud little boy. He got a hit, you know, baseball practice. He's like, man, I'm the best hitter ever. And he's brand new baseball player, got a hit. He goes in his backyard with the baseball. It's like, I announces it loud. I'm the best baseball player ever, you know, throws the baseball up, swings, misses. Okay. He's like, oh man, picks up the ball. I'm the best baseball player ever. Throws it up, swings again, misses, strike two. He goes, strike two. He's counting strikes. He thought he was going to say hit, strike two. Then he inspects the ball, like, what's something's wrong with the ball? Something's wrong with the bat. He goes, nah, I can do it. Throws it up. I'm the best pitcher ever, or hitter ever. Swings, misses. He's like, wow. Strike three. Wow. Wow. I'm the best pitcher ever. You know, and. You can see that happening because people can go through whatever circumstances where they should be humbled, you think, and they turn it to how, you know, it's all about them. And we have to be very careful because God uses a lot of things in our lives to humble us, to get us to recognize that we can't make it about us where we're God, and it's all about us. We need to re recognize it's about Him. And, uh, you know, we really don't know much at all, you know. One of my favorite illustrations I used years ago, uh, I love this illustration because talk about pride, you know, is, and going, leading me to destruction is a transcript. Uh, this is of a, a transcript, supposed to be a transcript of a radio conversation of a U.S. Navy ship with Canadian authorities uh, off the coast of New Finland in October of 1995, Okay. And this radio conversation was released by Chief Naval Operations 101095. Uh, and this is probably an apocryphal story, okay, when I think about it, because it's like this is too hard to believe, but it's a good illustration. Uh, Americans, uh, please divert your course 15 degrees north to avoid collision. Big old American ship, right? The Canadians recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to south to avoid collision. This should be a collision. And neither of these guys are going to move, right? The Americans. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. Americans. This is the aircraft carrier U.S. Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one five degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship. Canadians, this is a lighthouse. Your call. And... If you know, a lighthouse sits upon a, a mountain of rocks, you know. And, uh, 
And the thing is, is we can think because we've had some successes, you know, that we've done good. All of a sudden we start to look at ourselves that we're invincible. And we're not invincible. The only way you are invincible is in Christ because he's invincible, amen? So if you are in Christ trusting Jesus, following him, right, abiding in him, you're good. But that's because of his grace through your faith, not of yourself, amen? James chapter four, verse six says, but he of the Lord gives us more grace. That's why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love that. God gives grace to the humble. Now, it's very interesting to me when I look at that passage because we also read in 1 Peter 2, or uh, sorry, 5, 2 through 6, that God gives grace to the humble. Two different times, God gives grace to the humble in the New Testament. It's quoted a proverb that says God gives grace to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. See that three times? I love that. That's, that's a verse, if you don't have that memorized, that's a verse you ought to memorize. Pride, you know, goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. Chapter 60, verse 18, that's a good scripture to memorize in Proverbs. But this scripture in 4, 6 of James, that God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. That's a great scripture to memorize. I really want to encourage you guys to consider memorizing that because it's repeated in scripture more than once. But I think it's trip because when you see it in James 4 and we see it in 1 Peter 5, both times it's in the context of spiritual warfare. Both times the context of needing to be humble or Satan is going to eat your lunch. More than eat your lunch, he, Peter warns about how he goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to, vet, to devour. Therefore, resist him steadfast in the faith. That's what Peter says. And James says, uh, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. And both passages, when they talk about our battle with Satan, say God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So it's very important if you're going to have victory over Satan that you keep yourself humble before God. Because when you lift yourself up in pride or you get lifted up in pride and become independent, I can do my own thing, I can call my own shots for my life, I don't need to seek your will, Father. But, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, I believe in you, I'll go to church once in a while, but I'll do my own thing. Ooh, you are in trouble, man. The Bible says, warn those, you know, admonish them. In Hebrews it says, in the scripture, it says, don't forsake the fellowship of yourselves together as the habit of some, right? But gather together all the more as you see the day of Christ getting closer. Well, here you are today, this evening. Praise God, you're gathered together. You're getting the word, you're, you, you know, that's good. But when we become independent of God, we become like that, you know, I mean, I love that he uses the animal analogies, you know. Satan's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I love to watch, you know, animal you know, documentaries and, you know, documentaries on ver all kinds of animals. I love the ones in the big cats. But I notice what they go after. The lion doesn't say, since I'm a big, bad lion, I'm going to go after the biggest animal in the herd and shall tough him. No. He's like an opportunist. I'm going to go after the one that's independent, thinks he doesn't need the rest of the herd. The one that's kind of like, I I'm tough. I'm a tough gazelle, you know. Or I'm a tough zebra or just not very smart, and I'm going to get away from the rest of the zebras, and I'm going to foyage over here and find some food. Yeah, the, you know, the, the, the herd's over there, but I'm a pretty fast runner. I'm a pretty strong zebra. They're probably tripping out that I'm dare, so daring, and before you know it, it's like a bunch of lions on them, just tearing them apart, you know? And you got to be careful because the Bible says we, you reap what you sow. 
The Bible says, be not deceived. God is not mocked. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows for the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life, and we shall reap if we continue. So it's imperative that you and I don't become independent of God, we don't, that we don't cease to see our need to obey him and walk with him and stay in the flock with other believers and encourage one another and love one another and press on together in the faith. Because Satan is very real, and God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. In fact, it says in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, it warns not to exalt a new convert to the position of elder because he could fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Wow. And now commentators, scholars, teachers, they see that that can be understood in two different ways. He falls into the condemnation the same way the devil did by being lifted up by pride. Or he falls into the condemnation, meaning the devil's able to condemn him because now he's lifted up in pride. Because it says he become puffed up. You ever see a puffer fish? You know, those big old puffer fish, they're gnarly, man. You, 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 eat, you know, get puffer fish and eat puffer fish. You could die if it's not prepared right, you know. And uh, I've never eaten it. I don't think I ever need to eat it, you know, and test the chef out, you know. The chefs, they have to take an extraordinary amount of time in Japan before they can actually serve in puffer fish. And the way they get their, you know, their certification is if they make it for themselves, they have to eat their own dish and make sure they don't die first, you know. Well, these guys get puffed up, you know, the, like a puffer fish, bigger, big-headed, thinking there's something that they're not, and they fall into the condemnation of the devil. And it could be both. could be both. Same condemnation of the devil for sure. That's the way the devil's condemned. And, of course, the devil can accuse them and say, that person's living independent of you. He doesn't think he needs you. It's all about him. He needs to be coming to God. So that warns even Christians that we have to recognize that we have to depend on God every day. Amen. You know? Remember, he's God. We are not. And that we're not even close to what he is. Amen? And that we're made in his image by his grace. We should be exalting Christ in our lives all the time, giving him all the credit, all the glory for everything. Amen? And we're going to talk about some scriptures that will help us do that. But he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15 says, For this is, I love this, For this is what the high and lofty one, that's God, the high and lofty one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him, I love this, I live in a high and holy place, but also, he says, I live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. That means he lives with people who recognize that he's God, they're not, and realize that they need to depend on him and that anything we have good in our lives comes from him. Amen? Amen. Uh, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's beautiful. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. Has not my hand made all these things so they came into being? I mean, I made everything, declares the Lord this is the one, I love this, this is the one I esteem. God esteems, yeah. This is what I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you tremble at his word, man? Do you look at his word and like, that's the word of God. Do you fear the Lord? If you don't tremble at his word, if you don't fear the Lord, you don't recognize how radical he is. Why do you think I've shared with you through the years over and over again the nature of God is love, 
He's full of grace. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness and all those wonderful, beautiful attributes of how good he is. But I also let you know part of his goodness has to do with the holiness of his nature and that he is also, because the Bible says, consider the goodness and the severity of God. Amen? The Bible says there's one lawgiver who's able to save and is able to destroy. Amen? The Bible says that God is love, but it says God is a consuming fire. Why do I emphasize both through the years? Because we need to recognize that he so desires to love you. He, the Bible says he longs to show mercy. That's an awesome God, amen? But guess what, man? You can't give God the finger and say, I'm going to do my own thing and be my own God and think there won't be repercussions. Jesus said to his own apostles, don't fear man who's able to destroy your body. But fear God who's able to destroy your body and your soul in hell. Amen? And he warned, I've told you before, that when you look at all Jesus' warnings on hell, most of them, if not all of them, virtually all of them, most of them, by far, were directed at his own followers. Because what can happen is we can become arrogant. Oh, I'm saved. And I'll forget that it's all by his doing. It's all by his grace. We're saved by grace through faith. We have to put our trust in him, but it's by his grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. What do we have to boast in? You know, the Bible says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom in Jeremiah. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord God. Amen. Amen. We have to boast in God and who he is. Micah 6, 8, he has shown thee, O man, what is good. And what the Lord requires of you, what is that? Three things. To you justly, number one. Do what's right, right? To love mercy. To do justly, do what's right. To love mercy and to walk humbly before thy God. Amen? Man, I like that. It's really clear. Just do what's right. Love mercy. Be so grateful for God's mercy on you and love showing mercy to others because God's been merciful to you. Amen? And then walk humbly before the Lord, you know. Lord, help us to be more humble. Help us to recognize that every breath we draw is from you and by your grace. Amen? And we need to esteem others. Here's one way you can cure pride. Esteem others higher than yourselves. That's what the Bible says. Esteem other people higher than yourself. I mean, come on. How many people run to a car and you hear the kid, shotgun, a shotgun, and you might be doing that. I'm not condemning you, but they're like, I get the front seat. And we have a tendency to want to put ourselves first. But God says, Jesus said, you know, don't take the best seats at the wedding and then be humbled where you're being brought back because, hey, this is for somebody else. Take the bat worst seat and then you'll be brought up. God will give you position. It's funny because guess what? I, I will almost always try to say, hey, I'll take the back seat, even if it's a small car. I'm a big guy. And, that, and I, Jesus, what he says, it works. I say that. I don't say that so I can get the front seat. <laughs> I just say that because I just don't want to hog the front seat, seat. But people say, no, no, you're a big guy. Get in the front seat. I'm like, and I fight it usually. Then I'll give in, you know, usually. But a lot of times I can sit in the back. It's not a problem. There's room between my knees and the seat in front of me. If not, I make the person in the front seat that said shotgun pay for it. You know, no, 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 I don't. I'm just kidding. I don't do that. Pushing their, pushing their seat up back. No, I wouldn't do that. But uh, God wants us to be humble. Amen? And wants us to uh, esteem others 
higher than ourselves. And that's very important. In fact, listen to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In fact, let's turn there. It's so good. Philippians chapter 2. So good. And when you get there, I want you to notice that he's going to, first he's going to give the principle, and then he's going to give the illustration. Philippians uh, chapter 2. And I noticed that, uh, now notice in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Wouldn't that solve the crime problem in America? People do things out of selfishness and empty conceit all the time. But with what? But with humility of mind, regard one another as what? More important than yourselves. That's a really wonderful way to overcome pride in our lives. You know? Is to... Now, guess what? That's one of the hardest things in the world to do. But if you can say, Lord, help me to consider other people more important than me. We know theologically. Come on, let's be honest. We know theologically true. We're not better than one another. Amen? We're given different gifts and we're given different things and we all have all sorts of, you know, problems and situations we have to work through. We're all just animated by God's grace. Amen? So we're our, who are we to think that we're better than other people, right? So... Uh, and you can really see that too. Do you ever, you know, judge people by the way they look while that person's, or how much money they have or, you know, what they drive or what have you? That is so ridiculous because there's always people that look better than the next person. There's always people that have more money than the next person. There's always people that have a bigger this, that, or the other than the next person. And it's just ridiculous way of thinking. And that's, way, and that's why James says that if you put, somebody comes to church and, and they're rich and they have a, a ring on, you know, because it's a rich man. And I mean, most everybody has a ring these days, right? But, and he's dressed in great attire. You bring him up front and say, sit here, you know. You tell the other guy, sit down over there and be my footstool. He goes, you're a judge with evil motives. And so we kind of watch out because in the body of Christ, it's all, especially with the so-called prosperity gospel, they judge you by what you have, you know, and they actually teach that we are gods. It's all satanic, man, and it's satanic to the core. It's a false gospel, but I love that James emphasizes the beauty of the poor and the gospel, how the poor receive the gospel, and they're your brothers and sisters. It's the rich that are persecuting you and throwing you to prison, he says, right? You're, you're, you're having wrong estimations, and it says in, I think it's Luke 16, 8, that which is highly esteemed in the eyes of men is an abomination to God. That's powerful, man. That which is highly esteemed in the, in the eyes of men is an abomination to God. So we have to make sure we esteem others, you know. That means, guess what? If we esteem others higher than ourselves, we'll give other people our time, right? We'll spend time, you know, we'll, we'll, with other people when they're in need. We'll be there to encourage them. We won't just gravitate toward people. If you find yourself gravitating in your circle of friends and you start gravitating people that are considered good-looking by other people, I never even, I couldn't even, I honestly can never get my brain around that concept, people that do that. To me, that's so weak and weak-minded to like, oh, well, who's the good-looking crowd? I've heard people talk like that. I'm like, how do people even think like that? Or, oh, these people are rich, so they're going to be my best friends, you know? I love what David said, or the psalmist said, I'm a companion with all those who fear you. I love that, man. People that fear God, want to be right with God, that's the people I want to be around. I don't care what color, what shape, what size what bank account, what they look like. Because the Bible says man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, amen? 
So we want to esteem each other as higher than ourselves. And whenever you're dealing with somebody else, if they're a lost person, you should want them to come to Christ. You came to Christ, you're saved, so you should pray for their salvation. You should be a light to that person, amen? If you're a saved person, you, you want to treat you know, them as brothers and sisters in Christ in the same family, amen? And don't judge by appearance, but be humble and walk in love. Consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Look at that, man. That's powerful. When's the last time you looked to the interest of others? Think about it. Hopefully you could say today. Hopefully you don't have to think back weeks or months or years. You know, hopefully you could say there's some way today I thought of others. And why do you think he says, though, to Christians, you know, why do you think he says to Christians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? Because even Christians could do things out of selfish ambition and out of vain conceit. Or why do you think he says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves? Because as Christians, we can tend to maybe think we're better than others if we don't obey God's word. Why do you think it says, you know, uh, each of you should not only look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others? Because as Christians, we have a tendency to look at our own interests. I have to watch out for this in my own life. I'm constantly ministering to others, but I want to make sure in my prayer life, when I wake up in the morning and I seek him in prayer, I deliberately say to myself, so I, I, I need to, don't just pray for your needs and your trials, and what you're going through. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So I open my, my prayer life up and pray for you guys. I pray for my family, you know. I pray for my kids and pray for their spouses and their kids. I try to pray for the, the lost, you know. That's why I love to pray our Father. Because when I was a brand new Christian, I didn't get it yet. When I was a brand new Christian, I was just so happy I was saved. Now I want to see my family and friends saved. But guess what? When I first started praying, God, help me to, then I realized, man, I need to be praying more and more for my lost loved ones in Christ. So I started praying for my family members and my friends, and one by one, I started seeing them saved. But when I first got saved, I was like, you know, you're concerned, what's the gospel? Am I saved? You know, and I remember praying for myself, and I started, but you know what? I started praying for other Christians. You know what forced me to pray for other Christians? Because I, I didn't know any Christians yet at first. You know what forced me to pray for other Christians? The Lord's Prayer. You're right, our Father in Heaven did that. <laughs> our Father, I'm saying our, I'm like, who's our? I don't know any other Christians. Our Father who art in Heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in Heaven. Give us, wow, I'm praying for, who else am I praying for? This day our daily, our daily bread, right? Forgive us our sins right? Lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from evil. I'm like, I'm praying for our, our, us, our, our. I'm like, who are these other Christians? I got to meet them because I need, I need to follow, find the, who Christians are. So I learned, wow, before I knew Christians to start praying for other Christians. Then I started reading the epistles more. I started in the gospels and Paul saying, pray for all the saints and so forth. And, and I couldn't wait to meet Christians, actually people that knew Jesus. And then when I found myself in a Christian church, man, it was just so beautiful. I got to enjoy the koinonia, 
fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I started to realize there's millions of Christians all around the planet, man. People love Jesus, you know. And, and then it was like, okay, how do I serve? Because we're called to serve one another. Amen? It's like, how do I serve them? So you spend time with people. You encourage them, you know. I didn't, wasn't like, I didn't become a Christian and become a pastor the next day, you know. I mean, I started getting asked to do presentations in churches, you know, when I was a young Christian in my 20s, you know. Probably did my first presentation when I was like 20 years old or so, 19 or 20, then in churches in 20, and, and then for years I was doing them in churches. And I used to go all over doing presentations in churches, but it was just, that was just one way. Oh, I was at a church I was at for some time. I taught the fourth graders there. I was teaching the college career class. They asked me to teach the college career class at a big church here in town. I started teaching the college career class, but then I saw they had a need for fourth graders. So I started teaching the fourth graders too because I could do that. I could work my full-time job at the same time. We have to have an attitude of service. How do I serve other people? You have to ask the Lord. And sometimes you can fill a void in a Sunday school. You can really minister to the young people. You can always minister to one another by encouraging one another. The Bible says to encourage one another. The littlest things the Lord notices when it says esteem others higher than yourselves, you know, that means you're thinking about that. And when it says don't just think of your own interests but the interests of others, you have to shift your mind and say, okay, what? I can't just think of what I need to do. I need to think of how can I bless other people? And then you start translating that to wherever you're at, you know? I had physical therapy on my sh right shoulder today. They couldn't get me in, but on Wednesdays and Fridays, I'm like, man, it's bummer it's on Wednesdays because that's the day I'm working hard to finish my message and stuff. And, and uh, but, you know, you get there, and I'm sitting there, and then I see a lady. Have you said older lady? If you're watching this podcast right now, God, praise the Lord. You know, got to be careful when you say that. But, you know, she's, have you said older lady? And you know what? And I just went to the door. I ran to the door real quick and opened it for her just to show her Christian love, you know? And I just, you try to be loving, serve in any way you can, just little ways that people don't see today. They just don't see it. But you want to, you know, let people see there's a difference in who you are and let your light shine, right, to glorify God. But you, don't, you just don't, but you do it to glorify God, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. I see an older lady, and she's coming to a physical therapy center. What's she got wrong with her? I don't know if she, how good she, she's walking. I just made sure I didn't use my right arm too quick because I went quick and used my left one, you know. And, uh, and I found out I don't just have bone spurs and torn rotator cuff in here and floating cartilage, but clavicles messed up. And there's like, the guy said, I don't even want to tell you all that's going on. There's like, yours and your shoulder is a mess. Because I did like three different things to it that are messed up. And after it was already messed up, I rammed it in the ground. Some of you guys were at the Costa Rica trip. I was running as fast as I could and bam, I blocked the ground, but it didn't move. The earth didn't move. I did, you know. But uh, by the grace of God, you know, God uses those things. So I'm like, how can I be a servicer? So you just got to be in the practice of how can I be a servant? You know, how can I be a servant at church? There's a lot of ways you can serve. I mean, even if you don't have, if you're not an elder or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher, do you realize how huge it is that you're part of the body of Christ and the Bible says, the eye can't say the hand, I have no need of you, right? And we're all members of one another and that we build each other up. And even a little glass of water just will, you, you won't lose your reward in heaven. Jesus said, give someone a glass of water in his name, you won't lose your reward. You know, I was sharing with you guys some time ago, a uh, brother was sharing with me that, you know, he'd come into a church when he first became a Christian, and somebody just was nice to him. 
and showed him where he could sit. And he said he bawled like a baby. First time he was in a church and just sensed God's love because he hadn't been treated quite like that. And then you start meeting people like that. People come off the streets. They're in the world. They need to see Christ's love. They need to see pictures of Jesus. Amen? So it's important that we get this. You know, and that's not the tendency of humans. Researchers at the University of London did a study on people's estimation of themselves, and they concluded that, quote, a substantial majority of individuals believe themselves to be morally superior to the average person, and that this illusion of ours is, quote, uniquely strong and prevalent, they write. Most people strongly believe they are just virtuous and moral, yet regard the average person as distinctly less so. And I've seen studies in our penitentiaries, in, in federal prisons, where prisoners think that they're better than everybody else and think that they shouldn't be in prison, the majority of them. I've looked at studies, I've done, I, I did a, uh, a lot of studies on like self-esteem and that whole high self-esteem movement that was around and still is around. And we struggle with that, man, because it showed the test scores that were given to math scores that were given to several different countries. And the United States came in last place, okay? The United States is a pretty cool country in a lot of ways, but it's pretty, you know, it's getting off pace a lot, right? But Japan came in first place in those test scores for math. But the question was asked at the end of the, I am good at math. Guess who said they're good at math? Yes, at the highest proportion. The United States, okay? <laughs> You ask people where they range as a driver from zero to 100. On a curve, you know, the average is going to be, you know, but then you're going to have both sides of that average. But how many people are going to say, I'm less than 50%. I'm probably like in the 30s. I'm like, most people, I'm 80s. Oh, probably 90s. Some, I'm probably 98, 99. I could be a race car driver. Oh, really? You know, you get, and somebody might be able to be that. Maybe they're being honest. I don't know. But not everybody can be a race car driver, and everybody tends to be a great driver, you know. We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. And we tend to get, and this is very serious, and everybody's smiling right now because we can relate. This is very serious, though, because we need to recognize that that we have to esteem others higher than ourselves and that we're not supposed to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And then he gives us the antidote to it. He says in verse uh, five, your attitude should be the same. Oh, let me go to verse five in, uh, verse in the NASB, verse five. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to overcome pride and you want to be selfless and consider the interests of others and not just your own and, and esteem others higher than yourselves. Let Jesus be your example. Have the attitude that he had, who although he existed in the form of God, how he was in God, we're not in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be held onto or grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, a doulos. Now there's different Greek words for servant throughout the New Testament. Three or four, last time I looked. Four or five, right around there. Doulos. He uses the, the lowest, the Greek word right there is translated bond servant here, slave. That's what Jesus became. Didn't use higher words for servant or better or a little bit stronger than doulos. It uses the word slave or bond servant. And be made in the likeness of men, 
being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. What? Yes. And even worse, even death on a cross, the worst kind of way you could die because you drive. There was no worse way to die than a cross because if you combine the humility, stripping you naked, being called a criminal when he wasn't, and the shame and the pain put together, it's the worst way to die. That's what the Lord did. Why did he do that? Because he esteemed us more important than his own life. Wow. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is interesting though. He humbles himself. Now he has a name that's higher than every name, and he saves all kinds of people through the gospel. Amen. When it says God gives grace to the humble but resist the proud, then it says humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and then he will exalt you in due time. Amen? Amen. The way up is down, bowing before the Lord. Then he'll lift you up. Amen? And I think it's important because Jesus said you have to become like a child to enter the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change or repent and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Unless you repent, unless you're converted, as the King James, I think, says, and become like a child. What does it mean to become like a child? I mean, some of us will say, hey, I'm a childish person, man. That's what Jesus meant, man. I just, you know, I just act childish all the time. That's not what he means here, Okay. A child in those days had absolutely no rights and they were absolutely dependent upon their parent. Okay? And he's saying you have to become a child before God and say I'm absolutely dependent upon you. And now you, can, you know how you can test yourself to know if that's true? If God told you tonight to drop everything, right, and move to downtown Awagadugu in Africa, you know? I didn't make that up. There's a city called Awagadugu. And he told you, you got to move to downtown Ouagadougou, and I want you there, uh, uh, getting a flight there as soon as possible within the next three days. Let's say that, because I don't know how long it would take the flight to Ouagadougou. Or if they've got an airport. Would you do it? Would you say, yeah, whatever he wills, I'd do it. If you're at the point where, well, no, I might not want to do that. Then you have to say, have you really humbled yourself and put God first in your life? Some of you are saying, I could do it. No, but then he says, you can't bring anyone with you. And I want you to spend a year there. Would you do it then? Woo, the stakes just went up. You know, are you trusting the Lord enough to say, you know what, I would trust as well. Now you're saying, well, I'd have to know it was him. No, but you know it's him. Just hypothetically speaking, you know it's him. You, don't have to, you know it's him, would you do it? If he said, hey, I want you to go to Saudi Arabia, because you might look, be looking up, Googling Aguagadu, oh, it's pretty cool actually. No, you have to go to Saudi Arabia and you have to start preaching the gospel and telling everybody to repent and turn from Muhammad to Jesus or they're going to perish and wear hold up big signs and, and that you turn, turn or burn, you know. And uh, would you do it? You have to get to the point where you say, Lord, help me humble myself to where you're first no matter what in my life. And if you're saying, and hopefully you're all saying, yeah, I would do it. Or I want to do that. Or I want to be at the point where I do it. Lord, help me want to do it, Right? Hopefully now you're saying, I don't care what the Lord says. It's got to be within something I want to do. You haven't totally submitted to him yet. You've got to fully submit to the Lord. And that's what it means to be humble is you're God. I'm not. You're wiser than me. Amen. You know everything. And I know nothing. Jesus said, 
in chapter 23, verse 12 of Matthew, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus said Luke 1, or sorry, the Bible says in Luke 1.52, it's actually Mary who wrote or stated this in her, in her Magnificat. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Luke 14.11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself, Jesus said, will be exalted. Amen? Oh man, I love it. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, Mark 9, 35. If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, man, you got to be the servant of all. In fact, we used to sing, we need to sing that song again. Man, I used to love to sing that when I was a new Christian. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you got to be the servant of all. Uh, man, so many scriptures. Listen to this. Romans 12, 3. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Then in verse 16 of chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. It's just amazing. You know, I'm going to the end. I got a few pages of scriptures like this, but I'm just going to go to the very end because I'm looking at my clock here and I've just got a few minutes here. But... Here's some of my favorite scriptures in this that I keep, I love these scriptures because when I was a new Christian, they really were kicking the rear end. Joe, this is who you are and this is who humans are. And if, when you get this, it really brings you down to earth. I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who regards you as superior? And now listen to this. And what do you have that you did not receive? Think about that. What do you and what do I have that we didn't receive as a gift from God. Anything we have was made by him by his grace. And in his providence, he allowed us to have it. But if you did not receive it, huh, listen to this. I'm sorry. But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If everything you have is a gift, why do you act like you're any, why do I act, any of us act like we're anything if whatever we have that's good is from him? We can't act as though it's from us. And that we're better than others. Amen? I love that. I love that. You know, because I could take credit for some things, I have to admit. I could take credit for things in my life, and I'm very aware of that. You know what I take credit for? My sin. My failures in life. That's what I take credit for. Jesus says when, you've, when the, 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 you know, the hand comes in, when the servant comes in and he's done doing his work, he doesn't come in and the master doesn't say, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, you're so awesome. I'm paraphrasing. But he says the guy just has done his duty. That's what he's supposed to do. So when I do what's right, I shouldn't be looking to the Lord and saying, aren't you proud of me, God? I'm pretty awesome, huh? <laughs> you kidding? That would be a joke. I've only done his will. But guess what? I find myself through my Christian life. Before I was a Christian, even as a Christian, I've fallen short. All of us have. I can only take credit for, because he gets no credit for my failures or my sin. That's on me. Amen? And you know what that does? Oh, that must be miserable to think of it that way. Don't you have any pride in yourself and your achievements and things you've done? No. Because I know that only thing that I've done is by his grace, by his wisdom, by his power, by his providence, by his permission, by his strengthening, I know, I know me before I became a Christian, I was head to hell. I know it was by his grace that woke me up because I should be, I was in rebellion to him and so were you before you became a Christian and it's by his grace that I've been saved. Amen? 
And I look at my life and I'm like, well, praise God, good things have happened, but it's all by his grace. And we could have always done more, right? We could have always done more. Now, doesn't that create an attitude of pessimism? That, absolutely not. You know what it creates an attitude of? There, you, you nailed it, Jimmy. It creates an attitude of gratitude. Uh, in fact, my last notes are, uh, this is how we can be humble and thankful. If we recognize all glory goes to him, amen. It makes us humble. And then it's like, wait a minute. I should be in hell because of my failures, but I'm not because God became a man and died in my places, not just to die for my sins, but also to be an example of the way I ought to live. Amen. And I, I get salvation from the cross and what Jesus did, but I also get the ethic of dying to self and living to be a blessing to others. What a powerful truth that is. Amen. Praise God. What an awesome God we have. Amen. Let's live for the Lord. Let's be humble. Let's be thankful. Let's serve him. Let's not just consider our own interests, but the interests of others. Let's esteem others higher than ourselves. Amen. Let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. These are all Bible verses I'm quoting. How different Christianity is from every other system and religion, isn't it? In fact, you know the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day and Paul's day when they're writing about and teaching humility? Humility was to be humble. Was to be like, it was like a shame. Writers didn't write about that. They rejoice in pride and arrogance. But the world's backwards, amen. He turns everything upside down in the kingdom, amen. Father God, we love you so much. Can we all please stand?